Well, I hate going to the dentist. Uh, no, I don't have cold showers. What are you just, just a, you're just a monster. <laughs> you're just like looking for ways in which I might go out of my way to make myself horribly uncomfortable. Uh, no, um, no, I don't look for physical suffering uh, in life. My name's Andrew Lee and welcome to The Good Life, a podcast about living a happy, healthy and ethical life. Although I'm a politician and an economist, this isn't a podcast about politics or economics. It's about living a good life, which is an idea that goes back to the Greek philosopher Aristotle. What Aristotle meant by a good life was the life that one would like to live, a life with pleasure, meaning and richness of spirit, the life that most of us were trying to live until everything else got in the way. In this podcast, I'll seek out guests, not because they're smart, but because they're wise. I'll speak with writers athletes and social justice campaigners, with people who've been lucky and those who've experienced hard times. I've found their stories fascinating, and I hope you do too. Few people seem to enjoy life as much as Annabelle Crabb. She writes witty newspaper columns and thoughtful books. She's created television shows Kitchen Cabinet and When I Get a Minute with Lee Sales, and does a regular podcast called Chat 10 Looks 3, the title who's, uh, which I think is a nod to Chorus Line, if I'm not mistaken. She has three children, Audrey, Elliot and Kate, and seems to manage to spend a surprising amount of time with them. Annabelle's latest work is a cookbook titled Special Delivery, Favourite Food to Make and Take. Co-authored with Wendy Sharp, it's not just a set of recipes, it's also a love letter to the art of cooking. One of the reasons I'm doing this podcast is because I want to find people who know more about topics than I do. And what could be a bigger knowledge gap than between Annabelle and me on cooking? I love food, but I've never been much of a cook. Annabelle gets so much pleasure from it that I want to learn more. What role can cooking play in a good life? I also want to explore different philosophies to living a good life, and I think I may have found Australia's leading proponent of the Epicurean philo philosophical tradition. Uh, <laughs> I'll come back to that. Annabelle, thanks for joining me. It's a pleasure. What's the first dish you cooked? Oh, I think probably scones. Probably scones. Um, so I grew up on a farm and um, my mum's a great cook and periodically there'd be massive cooking um, assignments that would be about cooking for shearers and stuff like that. Um, so the farm calendar does rather um, pay attention to, um, to, to food-related events. You know, you need vast infusions of food for shearing and for harvesting and... Um, so, yeah, that, I remember a lot about cooking in a farm kitchen, yeah. How old were you when you were cooking scones? Oh, um, probably three or so. Um, you know, cooking with children is a particular art. You have to, I mean, if you are a good cook, you have to really suspend your sense of control freakery and let people do it in a slightly messier way than you would. And like, that's a really hard thing to do. And I often think back mm. to my mum who was a great and gracious um, acceptor of toddler help in the kitchen <laughs> and she was highly patient with us and you know that's perfect darling you know let's let's run with that lumpy <laughs> scone I have to fight to um, maintain that level of um, kind of Delphic calm but um, uh, but I, I'm definitely definitely there now I think yeah so just break that down a little bit more how have you gotten better at teaching kids to cook oh well you know when I first started um cooking with my um, first daughter, who's now nine, um, I think I was a bit like, let's make gingerbread. No, 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 no. You need to cut it like this. And 
there is something that is issued to children like when they're tiny it's like a it's like a universal memo that if you roll out a sheet of of gingerbread dough for instance and you give a kid a cutter they'll go straight to the middle whereas everybody knows if you're making gingerbread shapes in an economical way you'll start at the edge and fit in as many as you can but if you're three you'll just go straight to the middle and make one shape and then screw up the rest of it anyway um i think patience is something you if you if you if you love to cook and you love to be sort of in control in the kitchen and i really enjoy just having a kitchen to myself and being able to um, uh, just belt out food, you have to make an adjustment for um, slow cooking, which is cooking when you're teaching somebody else how to do it and allowing for many, many false starts. But there is a certain pleasure to that as well, as I learned over the years. Are there particular dishes that you remember were important in your your own learning to cook from your mum? I remember learning to chop things, you know, and just thinking, uh, having no idea how it was that my mother could chop things so evenly. Um, and when I watch my kids doing it now, you know, they they love to be around a really sharp knife. <laughs> and, you know, within reason, I like to give them a go on the sharp knife, you know. Um, I'm right there. But You've got to learn how to do that stuff. And really, the only way to do it is, is practice. Um, there is no other way to learn how to chop things with any kind of discipline. It's like it's like writing, I guess, holding a pen. Um, so, yeah, I remember learning how to do that and, and making biscuits, you know, and, um, and cupcakes and things like that. It's great for kids because mm. they love the mixing, they love the egg cracking, they love all of those constituent parts, the sifting where it's like you're snowing over a little bowl, you know, all of that stuff they really like. And that stuff is ready fast. Um, it's, it's creation is full of drama and then you put it in the oven and then it's ready to eat 15 minutes later. So um, they're all good things. Pancakes too, pretty good. Does your mum have a signature dish that you, uh, you still enjoy making? Oh, my mum. Yeah, look, there are so many things um, of hers that I make. Um, the one that I am obsessed with and it has sort of weirdly enough become, you know, uh, the dish from the cookbook that people most approach me about is um, these spicy nuts that she makes. I mean, they're kind of like a bar snack really and you get a whole pile of nuts and you um, get a single egg white and you whisk it until it's fluffy and then you... Um, roll the nuts around in the egg white so they're all coated. It's like this fabulous kind of glue. Um, and then you sprinkle um, a mixture of sugar, salt, cumin, curry powder, controversially, and uh, black pepper and a little bit of cayenne if you want them more spicy, um, and uh, a little bit of cinnamon as well. And you roll that through the mix and mix it all until they're all coated and then you just bake them in the oven on a tray and what you end up with is these roasted nuts that have a really a hard, crispy, spicy mm. layer on mm. the outside. Now, I know you would be in favour of the nut, right? Because you have that kind of um, economics analysis of the food that you eat and you're looking for things that are high in protein and high in nutrients. So a nut would be perfect for you. Uh, I guess so, yeah. So it's not that pleasure is irrelevant, uh, I, uh, but I would love to, uh, to to see those sitting in the supermarket and uh, and think I'll, uh, I'll, I'll, gra I'll, I'll grab a set of those. Well, you uh, could make them quite easily. I could, but 
but I guess that comes to the question of uh, of, of when cooking is a chore. And yeah, when it's a pleasure, right? So for so for for me, on you know, I I don't don't cook a lot, and normally I find it's it's work. Is it ever work for you, or is it always just play? I don't think it's ever work. It's just it doesn't ever feel like work, and it's because I. I find that it connects lots of bits of me together and in a weird way it is an economy for me because it allows me, um, I mean ever since I had children and I am quite, I have quite a busy job as well, I, I really treasure any activity that can allow me to um, achieve a number of things at once, you know. And with cooking, because in my house the kitchen's kind of the centre of the house, we all hang out in the kitchen uh, and the sort of around the kitchen table. It means that if I'm cooking, the kids are there, I'm chatting to them, they're helping, you know, so I'm kind of hanging out with them in a really nice way, but also at the end of it, there's dinner for them to eat. So it feels like a really good use of time because I'm really enjoying it. I find cooking relaxing. I'm not one of these people that finds it stressful. Um, and that's for a bunch of reasons. One, I'm, I've had a lot of practice at it and because I love it, I keep doing it. Mm. Um, but not everybody feels like that about cooking. And, and you shouldn't feel bad if you don't feel like that about cooking. I can't bear yoga, right? Some people are really into yoga and they find a special place where they can um, reconnect with themselves and they walk out of there feeling peaceful and rested. Or you see, I, if I go to yoga, I sit there thinking oh my God, this has been half an hour. I could have done lots of other stuff with this half an hour. You know, I don't, I'm not really suited to that sort of pursuit, I think. Whereas if I've just made a load of sausage rolls to put in the freezer for kids' lunches, I really feel I've enjoyed cooking that, that stuff. And I also have the satisfaction of knowing, all right, I'm prepared. You know, there's food in the fridge um, to be deployed at a second's notice if I run out of time at a later date. Do you have failures or uh, have you have you had great culinary failures and are you good at dealing with those or are your failures now pretty small slash non-existent? Um, I, I tend to, I mean, I'm a home cook. I'm not a um, sort of aspiring cordon bleu chef. I don't do a lot of stuff with, um, you know, xanthan gum and all that sort of gear. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, I'm not a kind of master chef, you know, can I verify this or whatever. Um, so... I cook out of curiosity, really. So I cook um, dishes that I know the kids love, you know, that are my regulars. I cook all the time. And then if I see a great ingredient, like we have a really good market around the corner from our place and that has really great vegetables. And so if I see a vegetable that um, I don't see that all that often, I'll grab it and then I'll build something around it. So, hmm. for instance, yesterday I was at my local markets and they had this baby fennel, these tiny little sweet little baby fennel and I love fennel so I snapped up some of those and um, when I get home I'll, um, I'll, I'll experiment with those, I'll do something with them. So I love kind of fantasising about what I'm going to use this ingredient for. If I've got a great ingredient I'll think what can I build around that. So the, the uh, shopping itself is also uh, a part of the pleasure? Oh yeah, I, I, I like to be, yeah I'm not I'm not a big fan of the supermarket. Right, um, I was going to say, a few people get great joy from wandering well, the actually, eyes the of the weird thing is that my partner, Jeremy, he loves a supermarket expedition. Yeah, okay. And I think it's just – he's a very methodical person. I'm more shambolic. So he likes to – I mean, he never forgets anything. If I go to the supermarket, I'll wander around and go, wow, tin beetroot. I've never – it's ages since I've had tin beetroot. So I'll get a tin of tin beetroot. I was like, oh – 
<laughs> or you know, I'll I'll see something. Ah, oh, extraordinary. <laughs> There's some kind of cheese or something, and so I'll come home with this very interesting but not entirely practical bundle of groceries because I'm all about you know. Oh, that would be interesting. What could I do with that? Whereas Jeremy is really much more switched on about actually we need toothpaste. Um, and so – and he actually quite – I think that he has a – you know, he, he quite likes the peace and quiet of going to a, a supermarket and filling an order, you know, and coming home with it and then deploying the things that he's bought on the shelves, you know, and then thinking, right, we're sorted for laundry powder. You know, he's really good at it. And I'm a bit terrible at it and I get a bit sort of like, oh, I'm over this supermarket already. And I have this third experience, which is uh, about a quarter of the time I find myself choosing a product off the shelves and just noticing the person next to me kind of going, oh, that's what my local MP orders. Oh, right. Yeah, that can't be any fun. So it's sort of weird, right? I mean, often you get these lovely conversations, but uh, (laughs) but the the supermarket is, you you feel you're you're on when you're at the supermarket. Right, you're being judged for your purchase. I've never really thought about that. But fresh food markets uh, sound like unmitigated joy for you. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the unpredictability of them is great Mm. and it's what you lose with the retreat of seasonal food i mean you know you can get strawberries all year round you can get watermelon all year round for god's sake which i mean you could never get when i was growing up you know in this country town you get whatever was in season if you're lucky you know um well now you walk to a giant supermarket and you can get a passion fruit or anything you know winter months no problem someone's making it somewhere um so I like going to markets just because I'm a, you know, hopeless hippie, but also because um, I like seeing the thing that's just been picked and knowing that it's in season and accepting the challenge of how do I make something um, delicious out of this. For for instance, the other day I walked, it was a week ago, I walked into my, um, my local market and they this great organic fruit and veg purveyor there had a head of Romanesco, which is the most fabulous. It's like a cross between a cauliflower and broccoli. And my friend Wendy, with whom I co-authored the book, has been nagging me for about six months to roast a whole head of Romanesco. It's the freakiest thing. It looks like a robot um, cauliflower. It's It's pale green and it's got conical little sort of florets, but are quite closely packed. So it's like a... It's like a um, cauliflower that's been fed through a sort of bitmap machine. <laughs> anyway, it's um, she's had great success with roasting it whole in a hot oven and then putting sort of some sort of pesto all over it. Anyway, and then serving it just on a plate with a knife stuck in it. <laughs> <laughs> and she keeps saying, oh, "You got to make this." I'm like, "I can't find Romanesco, man. It's just it's not anywhere. They don't make it in Australia." And then she's googling, you know, where where it's grown in Australia. Open your eyes. It's got to be around here somewhere. Anyway, I found one. So that's you, good. Are you a locavore? Do you do you like eating things that are uh, grown within close proximity to your home? Yeah, look, I am very fortunate in that I live in Marrickville, which is this sort of epicenter of food at the moment. There's, I mean, people just are constantly setting up gin stills <laughs> around the corner, which is obviously very helpful. Um, so there's lots of locally um, created stuff. The 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 market that I go to the um, the fruit and veggie comes. Of the purveyor that I go go to comes from Orange, which is you know a bit of a drive away. Look, I'm not um, I'm not 
um, dogmatic about it. But like a lot of people, I enjoy the process of food and sort of knowing a bit about where it came from mm. and um, and being part of that creative process, I suppose. How do you know you're getting better at cooking? Ah, oh, that's a very good question. See, I don't... I mean, I'm, I, I am pleased when I come up with something that I'm proud to give my friends or, um, or whatever. I mean, I don't actually do a lot of dinner parties or anything like that, mainly because my house is so messy. I just can't be bothered tidying it up. That's part of the good life is just not tidying all the time. Um, just life's a bit short. Yes. Um, so it does mean that I don't have one of those sparkling houses where, you know, 20 people can drop round and I'll just, you know, whip up or something or other because I'd be too busy trying to find the dining room table, which is only really cleared for state occasions. Um, but um, I think I know I'm becoming better because I have techniques in my head that make me know how I could turn this ingredient into something great you know mm. and I, I think some people are instinctive cooks but you've got a feed instinct with experience to remember that this is a really great technique to use with that vegetable or that this and that flavor goes together I don't eat meat so um, I that has taught me to be a lot more imaginative with vegetables yes. I eat fish though um, so that adds a sort of protein to the to the situation but I love finding out freaky new things to do with wow one of the most interesting events that I went to um, in the last year was a dinner um, commemorating the fact that this is the United Nations International Year of the Pulse I had no idea it is and apparently it was the year of quinoa in 2012 and that absolutely rocketed quinoa to stardom so the Pulse people are all hoping that it'll do the same thing for them anyway there were lots of really interesting people in um, at this dinner uh, who grow pulses and um, pulses are like dried um, so a dried bean is a pulse mm. um, a bean is a legume but a dried bean is a pulse so it's all those things that you um, buy in a bag that are dry and then you cook them somehow make right. them soft so it's and the palatable. bean equivalent of grapes turning into sultanas yeah it is right yeah. so and um, chickpea like your dried chickpea is your classic pulse right, right? right. Um, and I met someone who was making chickpea tofu and this person could also make chickpea milk. And they gave me this great piece of information, which I did not believe at the time, but I've since checked and tried it and it works, which is, did you know that you can make a vegan pavlova using the brine from a tin of chickpeas? I am not joking. Wow. Yeah. Which most people throw away. Right. Yeah. So you drain off the brine, you keep your chickpeas to do whatever you do with chickpeas with, and then you put it in a mixer, like a stand mixer, and you whip it with a whisking attachment. I mean, you could do it just with a bowl and a whisk if you're incredibly fit, so probably you can't do it. And what do you know? This slightly gloopy brine um, whisks up and it holds the air just like whites do. So it looks all meringue. And then you whisk caster sugar into it just like you'd do with egg whites. And there, before you know it, you have this sort of stiff, fluffy mixture that looks, I am not kidding, exactly like beaten meringue right and then you just bake it in a um flatten it into a disc spread it into a disc and bake it and it just is exactly like a pavlova so strange you Isn't sound like you desperately want someone to come over dinner who is a vegan pavlova lover so you, can, so you can try this like i can i can but hear then my you brain say is just going like okay so i've got the vegan pavlova but i can't put cream on it because uh vegans don't eat cream totally. so it'd have to be 
maybe coconut yogurt. See, I love working out how to adjust dishes to suit somebody else's mm. requirements. So um, a very dear friend of mine was diagnosed with celiac disease recently and she was the world's greatest cheese sandwich eater, you know, and I cook a lot for her because she doesn't cook a lot herself. Um, and so I've, a, I've been obliged to adapt a whole lot of my recipes to be wheat-free and it's such a fascinating challenge. Wow. And in some cases, the things that you make with, that, like, with a gluten-free substitute are actually better than the originals. So in our cookbook, we've got um, a recipe for Wendy's grandmother's ginger fluff sponge, a great and challenging sponge because, you know, you've got to get the sponge right. I've made it now with gluten-free flour and, and corn flour and it's actually a better texture. I find it easier because you don't get that toughening of the gluten that makes um, can make a sponge go a bit leathery. So it sounds like next time you invite me over for dinner, I should say that I'm allergic to everything that you doesn't start with the letters A, K, and L. Throw me a curveball, yeah. Actually, I think the tricky ones are the Janes. Um, they're a tricky religious group to cook for because they only eat things that have sort of fallen from the trees naturally. They don't really harvest anything. And I think they've got it. I think I'm probably just absolutely getting it wrong. But I remember um, having dinner with a Jane person once and just going, whoa, that must be really hard. Here's some berries I prepared, prepared earlier. Yes, exactly. <laughs> uh, so uh, so let's. you write in special delivery that uh, making food for others says, I care enough about you to spend a bit of time making something delicious. So mm. let's do rapid fire, best dishes for a bunch of situations. Oh, okay, yeah. Best dishes for a new parent? Oh, um, something that can be put in the oven and reheated um, at their leisure, but that has um, plenty of protein and a bit of heft to it. So, I mean, I think um, I've got this great chickpea bake that, um, well, actually, the, it's Wendy's recipe, um, and it is um, kind of tomato and onion and chickpeas and lots of cumin um, made into sort of like a stew, and then you fold some spinach through it and lots and lots and lots of herbs and then you put it in a casserole dish and then on top you slice all this halloumi and lay it over the top so it's like the crust you bake it and you've got this incredibly delicious cheesy sort of crust and the quite piquant kind of mor almost moroccany sort of a chickpea bake underneath and I, some people will hear like oh, chickpea bake thanks neil from the young ones but actually it is a really compelling dish people just can't stop eating it but it's great for a nursing mother too beautiful Mm. Uh, for your in-laws? <sighs> I, if I had to choose a kind of, normally when my in-laws are coming over, there's lots of people because my partner is from a big family and we've had a lot of luck with um, roasts and stuff for them. So Jeremy's a massive um, big event cook, like he really likes to cater for a lot of people with a large chunk of meat. I think it's because I don't eat meat that when there's lots of people coming around, he's like, ha-ha, carnivores, strike back. <laughs> We're in the majority. So, like, seriously, yesterday when I was just coming to Canberra, I did all this panic baking with leftovers from his roasts from the weekend because his mum came over and, and, and a couple of siblings. And he just over-catered. So, like, we had about, seriously, 700 grams of roast beef left over, which I made into a... Um, uh, sort of a ragu pasta sauce mm. with my new pressure cooker, which I only got a couple of uh, weeks ago, which I've been absolutely hammering ever since. I don't know why I haven't had a pressure cooker up to now, but wow, it's a really good thing to have. 
Uh, I'm starting to realise Annabelle Crab uh, and food doesn't do rapid fire, but this is yeah, good. I know. Sorry. Um, no, yeah. no, no. This is great. You just uh, want me to say names of dishes. No, no, no. Uh, no, no, I, see, no. I, I'm, I just witter on. Sorry. I did initially, and then I heard you describe them, and now I'm just really hungry. Uh, it's been a while, but uh, cooking for someone for the, for a, for a romantic uh, potential uh, for like I was wanting to say first date, but you don't typically cook for a first date. So cooking for someone for a romantic special person for the first time. Oh, I would always go. See Seafood, you know, I love a bit of a. What's that? I don't know. There's just a bit of theatre about seafood. Plus, it's a beautiful. It's light. Like if you if you kind of feel in the love a bit, you don't want like a giant giant meal, right? I don't know. I don't know. I think a lovely, um, maybe like a roasted prawn or my ideal long long preparation dish involving seafood is making pasta and making. Um, tortellini with a kind of a lobster if you can afford it but prawn sort of mousse inside that's oh, that pretty amazing yeah. yeah yeah it is but see i really like process hmm. i like because cooking is often about time right and i think that when you cook something for somebody it's like a gift of a little parcel of time so it's why i wrote that thing about hmm. it's a demonstration it's like hand making someone a card instead of buying one or whatever it's it's not really about the thing it's about you are significantly important to me and I spent all this time making you this. Yes. And part of it is also knowing what that person likes and taking something or giving something to them that will suit their where they are in life or what's happening to them. I'm going through a real rash on Wendy's advice of making homemade um, hot chocolate for people where you – if you know that someone doesn't drink coffee or um, maybe is just needing a bit of nourishment and a little bit of a – friendly pat then a little jar of homemade hot chocolate which you could make just by whizzing up chocolate and um, cocoa and then other things that you can chuck in like a little bit of sugar but also the last one I've been making is orange zest and cardamom so it's like a little bit spicy Mm. and it kind of mixes up very nicely into some warm milk to make an instant hot chocolate that is kind of a a bit of a gesture thing so the tailoring isn't just around allergies, it's also around needs. Yeah, no. yeah. So if someone's sad, you know, yes. or you know that they're spending a lot of time looking after a sick relative or something, maybe you can give them something that's easy to make but that, that is a bit of a, I don't know, a bit thoughtful. What about for a hangover? What do you cook for a hangover? Oh, just something massively fried. Um, I've got um, – I, I love fried food and I just, you know – um, it's my go-to – like I wouldn't go to chocolate or even to cakes or something. I would just go to something that involves a fried cheese really. So I've got these um, corn fritters where I love corn in anything really. Um, but I make these corn fritters that have got lots of corn in them but also um, some grated halloumi for that sort of saltiness and then some lime zest for some sharpness and then lots and lots of coriander – and when you fry those up, they're all golden and crunchy and a bit fried cheesy as well. Yeah, that would be my number one hangover food. And for a funeral wake? Oh, look, tragically, I can answer that straight away because um, my father-in-law died last year and we did all the Sorry. cooking for the funeral. And actually, you know, it was a really cathartic experience. And if you are – like in that situation, my partner's got um, 
you know, a big family, lots of brothers and sisters, everyone's helping. It's good to have a job that you can do where you think, all right, I'm being helpful. I, I don't know what to say to anyone really because it's just sad and awful. But here's something that I can do that's helpful mm. and that is just cook a giant mess of food. So, um, And you have to be thoughtful about people who are standing around already feeling a bit awkward. So you need something they can hold in their hand. So I think I made lots of um, kind of pita crisps, like toasted with some spices on them. And then I made... Um, a, uh, um, a kind of a smoked natural mackerel pate to put on them. And um, Jeremy and I also got very ambitious and made duck pancakes, which we regretted halfway through because duck pancakes are quite t- labour-intensive. <laughs> <laughs> and do you have much truck with the uh, some of the sort of new food movements? Um, uh, when Wendy's a scientist, do you enter molecular gastronomy? Uh, no, I'm not because I'm a bit... Um, I'm probably a bit slapdash for that. I, I like, I do follow recipes, but then I always adapt them to my own personal taste. And um, I'm not, I'm not massively a precision cook in that way. Like I don't like, I'm not governed by making something that looks exactly perfect or whatever. Um, but I mean, food movement-wise, I don't know. I get a bit annoyed by the paleo thing. Um, I'm a bit of an everything in moderation fan, really. I can't imagine that the pathway to happiness absolutely lies with renouncing wheat, you know, unless your villi in your intestines are telling you that Mm. you have to. Um, I think that one of the glorious parts of life is romping around and trying this and that. And the idea that you would just forbid yourself endlessly from doing that is a, a bit of a bleak prospect for me. So similarly with organic food, you're not... Although that said, I don't eat meat, so, you know, there you go. <laughs> I mean, my, my carnivorous friends would just say, what, you fraud, you don't eat chops or whatever. I don't know, I don't For ethical it. or dietary reasons? Uh, well, I grew up on a farm and we did sort of a lot of our own butchery and I don't know. I think when you grow up on a sheep farm, you end up eating a lot of mutton. <laughs> like you sort of <laughs> export the lambs. Yeah. Eat the ewes. (laughs) So you just get a lot of really sheepy sheep. Um, And I don't know, I was just never really into it. And then I think when I moved out of home and went to university, I was about 16. I don't think I really, I don't know, probably couldn't afford meat. Um, And I just didn't eat it. And then I kind of, I I, I think I sort of happened upon a uh, personal rule where I thought, okay, I will eat anything that I'm prepared to kill with my own bare hands. And so I eat fish because I'm happy to knock over a fish um, or crustacean. But chicken and anything north of chicken, uh, I let it live. I turned vegetarian for six months as a kid. Until the girl was in the bag. That's what (laughs) normally happens. (laughs) Much too young for that. I was 13 and uh, my mum had a whole lot of prawns. And as you you drop them into the boiling water, as you well know, um, they make a squealing sound, which sounds as though they're sort of making their last... uh, last, Exactly. Um, So I, I turned vegetarian for six months and then... One day, just without thinking, picked up a hamburger and, right, uh, yeah. and it, was, it was all over. It's normally the bacon uh, sandwich that turns them around. Oh, <laughs> love the bacon. Um, and uh, and uh, do you 
when you talk about sort of food movements, you, you comment in one of your podcast episodes that when you see a dish showing up on airline menus that you know it's, uh, it's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's past, past the peak. <laughs> Are there, what's the stage at which you kind of turn your nose up at a, uh, at a, at a dish? Oh, no. I don't really get I, – I like to – I think food is a bit like fashion, you know, like you wait around and all of a sudden – flares are back in and I think food's a bit like that too so for instance the other night for my mother-in-law I made um kind of a variation on crepe Suzette you know I love a pancake and it's not a super fashionable thing to serve anymore a crepe but I actually think that as a dessert they're just so great so this one had kind of like a sweetened cheese in it because when I traveled around Poland when I was um in my 20s I used to – there was not a lot of vegetarian food in Poland, so you'd eat a lot of potatoes and these amazing pancakes called naliżniki, probably um, offending the pronunciation gods there. But um, And there was this beautiful one that was just – it had sweet cheese in it and a squeeze of lemon on top. Just so tasty. And I've recreated those in my head so many times since and I – actually did it properly um, on Saturday night. And I bought some sweet cheese from the local Lebanese bakery. So it was actually like almost like a rosewatery scented mm. cheese. Um, and I put them inside, chunks of it inside crepes and then made an orange caramel with orange juice and some sugar and water. And that went down a treat. And I thought, yeah, big dob of ice cream on top. Hello, 1970, whatever it was when somebody <laughs> last made crepe Suzette. Knowledge <laughs> Nikki is back. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and uh, mm-hmm. when you're out at a restaurant, um, wh- what's the way you approach the menu? So, mm-hmm. and for example, uh, I always look at the menu and yeah. think uh, if I'm if I'm dining at a good restaurant, it's a it's a rule that uh, Tyler Cowan, the economist, mm. uh, has propounded, which has never failed me. Um, how surprising that you would have an economic theory on yeah. how to order in a restaurant. So, yeah, so here, here it is. Um, <laughs> At a, at a great restaurant, uh, the lasagna will survive whether it's good or bad. Mm. Um, the chicken parmigiana will survive whether it's good or bad mm. because there's a bunch of risk-averse customers who, mm-hmm. are, who are ordering familiar dishes. Yeah. Um, but the strange, wacky, wackiest dish on the, on, the, on the menu, the combination of beetroot and duck, uh, is only there because it's great. So find huh. the thing that looks uh, least appetising and order that. Wow. What's your rule? That's a really good... Idea. I do think that there is um, – you need to – if you know anything at all about the restaurant and you know what they're famous for or you know what their signature dish is, you should go for that if you've not been there before because that will be the thing that is there because it's genuinely great and because people who go there regularly will not give it up. I mean a, a dish at a restaurant for which its regulars will fight to the death is going to be a good dish. And it's, it's actually hard for people who run restaurants – um, and have and develop all these signature dishes because it means that they kind of take them off. So if you look at Heston Blumenthal's uh, restaurant, The Fat Duck, in the UK, you know, it's been making snail porridge forever, you know, which even though the surprise and thrill's gone out of it for most people, that people still want to eat that um, dish. It, so it can be a real trap. I have a few um, pre-existing prejudices um, and there are some things that I love so much that wherever I see them, I'll just order them. In fact, whenever I go out with Jeremy, he always says, well, I know that you're ordering number three entree or whatever. So anything that's um, a crudo of fish, like a, um, a raw fish sliced 
um, a carpaccio of fish is just, I will instantly be attracted to that because I love really, really fresh seafood and if that dish is going to work, it's got to be really, really fresh. Um, so sometimes I've got to really tear myself away from ordering the obvious in that way. Um, but yeah, I like a, an unusual combination that I haven't seen before will always um, draw my attention, I think, too. If you're going around in a circle ordering and a uh, friend orders something you were going to order, do you switch? Yep. Why? Because I want to see what they all look like. So I want to give myself the greatest opportunity to view the largest number of dishes. But this is food you're going you're gonna to eat that suggests you're placing quite a large value on what it looks like. No, it's not what it looks like. It's the, the ideas, right? Because sometimes I'll see yeah. something and I'll think, oh, Look at the way that person has made that mushroom. So, for instance, only a couple of weeks ago, I was at my market that I keep talking about, and um, it's the Addison Road Market in Marrickville. It's it's kind of really built up over the years since I've moved into the area, and it's now this like really, I can do most of my um, vegetable shopping there every weekend, and it's um. There was somebody who had the most beautiful Jerusalem artichokes there. Now, I'm a bit nervous about Jerusalem artichokes because sometimes they're knobbly, they're a bit grubby, you've got to peel them and then there's nothing left of them. But these were these beautiful, clean, bursting-looking Jerusalem artichokes and I just grabbed them thinking, right, I'm going to do something, I'm going to do something with those. Anyway, I kind of roasted them in the pan, like just put some butter in the pan, just sort of cleaned off any knobbly bits, which, of which there weren't many, and kind of fried them. And they're a really buttery vegetable, so it's quite indulgent to sort of fry them. And then I put stock over them and then covered the pot until the stock was all absorbed in cooking the um, vegetables and then put sliced those into a salad. Um, now, that is something that I was obsessed with because I had eaten at um, Mona, at the um, um, gallery in um, Tasmania, and just seen these incredible golden, buttery-looking mm glossy shiny burnished Jerusalem artichokes I just thought god they just look so great and I knew before I even tasted one that I wanted to make them look like that so sometimes you get a visual cue where so you see something that looks so great that you're then driven to try and work out how to recreate that I still think you could achieve the same thing by walking slowly back from the bathroom and checking out what's on other yeah, people's Yeah, but tables. you see, no, uh, people that you don't know are always a bit less excited about you po prodding and poking their dish and saying, look, can I just have a fork full of that and just, you know, just There's just one person in Australia who could get away <laughs> with that, it's you. Uh, so... When I think about your kind of philosophy on life, it seems to fit most naturally in the, the Greek uh, Epicurean tradition. So the, the followers of Epicurus, 300 BC, pleasure, it, life is about maximising pleasure and minimising pain. And the, uh, the Epicureans are, are sort of very much in counterpoint to the Stoics, uh, who were about sort of higher meaning, logic, yep. reason, all, all, that, all that kind of thing. Um, do you see yourself as, as an Epicurean, as somebody for whom um, the maximising of pleasure for you and your friends is at the heart of living a good life? Um, I don't think it's quite as hedonistic as that sounds. I mean, I do think that particularly when you're trying to do several things at once, i.e. be a good parent and um, work full-time. This is a great problem that lots of people deal with. You know, you'd, 
you have all of these things that you're doing, elements of which make you very, very happy, but you w- parts where they clash and parts where you think you're not doing one as well as you would do if you were doing that thing exclusively, um, that brings it brings stress and tension. You know, it's not hedonism. You're you're having it all in that kind of hackneyed phrase, but because you're also trying to sort of do it all at the same time, it's it's hard. Like there are there are times that are really difficult, and so the joy I think comes from the occasions where you manage to bloody pull it off, or where you think, okay, I'm pleased with what I've achieved here and and how I've done this but you know oh my god I still forgot sports socks or I you know um I feel really bad that I left work early or whatever you know like there's elements to that busy contemporary life that mean it's never hedonism you know you're aiming for maximum pleasure for all concern but of course to create pleasure for other people can involve a certain amount of personal sacrifice but um, ideally pulling it off can create a very deep underlying satisfaction which um, means that it all comes out in the wash if you know what I mean. So I don't think um, I'm quite in line um, with your ancient colleagues because I don't think that I live life with a um, a disregard for or a, or a, um, an avoidance of pain or difficulty. I think it's about finding a road that provides you with joy and satisfaction and allows you to survive the difficulties with a smile on your face. But the smiles on the smile on your face seems to be well. First of all, you do a lot of it, and secondly, uh, it seems to be extremely important to to the way in which you see see the world. Um, so, yeah, I did city to surf yesterday. I took a sort of um, uh, bizarre joy in the fact that I was uh, pushing my body so hard that I was uh, close on the edge to throwing up for right. a bit, for the second half of the race. Yeah. Um, my <laughs> sense see, of now I'm smiling because you're an idiot. <laughs> my, yeah, my sense my sense of you is that is that that is that is not something mm. from which you would derive kind of deep set deep satisfaction. No, I, d- I would not run until I feel like throwing up. That's right. <laughs> um, what is the hardest thing? So, so do you uh, do you pull back from pain in any sense? Are there contexts in which you uh, you, you look to kind of, or, or are there? Yeah, you know, do you have well, cold showers? Well, I hate going to the dentist. Yeah. Uh, no, I don't have cold showers. But you're just a, you're just a monster. <laughs> you're just like <laughs> looking for ways in which I might go out of my way to make myself horribly uncomfortable. Uh, no, um, no. I don't look for physical suffering uh, in life. No. How do you stay healthy with uh, with all of the wonderful food that gets produced in your house? Um, well, I just chase three children around mainly. Like I'm, um, I don't overeat. Um, I am always active, but I don't. Oh, look, there's a lot of research about this about what happens with women when they um, when they mix work and family and there is a really strong pattern that the first thing that goes is things that women do by themselves like leisure exercise it's the first thing they give up when they start to get pushed for time and I used to jog and um, exercise not to your frankly insane um, levels but (laughs) (laughs) but I don't anymore because 
I would have to get up so early in the morning and that would be the only... I mean, I, I used to go for a run in the mornings, but my children all get up so early and I'm so loath to sacrifice time with them. And besides, if they woke up and I was like unaccountably disappeared, they'd, you know, tear the house down. So I think I'll get back to that at some point, you know, um, exercising more. But at the moment, it seems like a bit of time that I can't find in the day, you know. Yeah, little ones are amazing. Yeah. Just in those first few f- first few moments of the day, my uh, <laughs> three-year-old was sitting on the bench today when we were making making coffee together, just uh, talking about what the clouds were doing and <laughs> what he'd been doing what he'd been doing over the weekend, and and just opening up in a way that he doesn't uh, late and uh, late at night when he's uh, when he's a bit tired and cranky. <laughs> so. I get you about the opportunity cost yeah. in the morning. Um, I think I, the most physically challenging thing I've done is give birth to, to three children and I found that such a fascinating process. I really enjoyed it as a really weird word to use but I was really – I found it a really absorbing process and I decided not to have drugs because I sort of was interested in that process and um, – I found it demanding, like insanely demanding, but really fascinating. Mm, because yeah. you're just experiencing your body doing something so whacked out. It's really, really, yeah. So childbirth's definitely one for the Stoics rather than the Epicureans. Right, exactly. Yeah. I feel like I've got to come up with a, like something in the Stoic <laughs> later. I just think, around, I think I'm lying around feeding myself peeled grapes all day or hot chips, which is what I prefer. So that, um, that segues into sort of one of the things that sometimes said about uh, kitchen cabinet, which is that mm. you're so often looking for the best in people. Mm. So, you know, the standard critique of kitchen cabinet, which I'm sure you've uh, heard a dozen times, is uh, Annabelle Crabb uh, goes to Pauline Hanson's house and discovers she's a really lovely person who cooks a terrific Thai red redfish curry. <laughs> yeah. Uh, how, how do you how know I've already shot that? <laughs> <laughs> how do you how do you um, how do you deal with that challenge of uh, not just creating good television but also finding a little slice of inner truth about someone you're speaking with? Well, not everyone will like the thing that you find about them, but I mean the the idea behind the program is just to relate to this person that you see on the television as though they were a person that you were going around to have dinner with, you know. And I observe the rules that people observe when they go to someone's house for dinner. You know, you're polite. You are enthusiastic to an appropriate degree about their decor and the cooking and you want to know about them. You ask them questions about themselves and see what they say. And I'm I'm interested in the responses. I always think it's... It's revelatory in a different way from a normal television interview to see what people talk about when you are not a threat to them. You're just genuinely interested and you're asking them questions. You find out about how they see themselves and how they'd like to see themselves and also um, what um, what they talk about when given an opportunity to talk about anything at all. So it is a much sort of softer form of interviewing but um, – I also think that in a democracy, no matter how much you despise, you know, person X who's been elected, you cannot disregard the fact that they've been elected. I mean, if you're going to be serious about democracy, then I think it pays to be genuinely interested in anyone who is a product of that democracy. Otherwise, you don't understand what the electorate's doing, right? And 
that's why I would never say, oh, I'm not interviewing that person on Kitchen Cabinet because I can't bear them. Because someone's elected them. And I think if you're going to be serious about taking democracy seriously, then you have to be equally interested in everybody that that system coughs up. Not as a voter. You can, you know, absolutely put someone last. But if you're, particularly if you're working for a public broadcaster and you're making a program that is finding out more about politicians, then the moment that it com- becomes about me deciding that I don't like that person, I don't like that person, um, then it's not really um, what it claims to be. Oh, no, I didn't have in mind that you wouldn't, that you'd rule people out. It's just the oh. question to which you kind of uh, move on the level of pleasure and enjoyment mm. and, uh, uh, well, so... When it comes to culture, the Stoics think that uh, culture is about sort of living a good life. Mm. Uh, the Epicureans think culture is purely for enjoyment. Mm. Uh, so I guess it's that mix of kind of entertainment and news mm. that you're, uh, you're, you're playing in. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah. yeah. But I, I mean, I often think that the snobbery about the entertainment, about um, combining entertainment and news can create a real, I don't know, you've got people who think that, that politics – can only be understood, you know, through the pages of the Financial Review or whatever. You've got to be incredibly serious and um, and every part of the content has to be about administering the medicine of, of dense policy information or whatever. But I think that it's worth opening whatever doors you can into the um, democratic process and I've never had a problem with politicians that go on FM radio and, you know, do all those sort of stunts that often they do around elections. Because I think, yeah, right, you're going to find the voters where they live. It's like door knocking, right? And so if you make a show that's about going into someone's house and talking to them and maybe different people watch that from the ones who would watch the 7.30 program or whatever, then great. If someone sees something that they think is interesting about a political figure that makes them want to find out more about them or makes them understand a bit more about why they do the things they do or makes them see them in a different light, then I think that's fine. It's not like, you know, we have limited bandwidth for coverage in this country anymore. Mm, mm. So you've done a huge amount through your career. You've basically uh, played in all kinds of aspects of, uh, of media. Like all good hedonists do. <laughs> or all good Stoics. I mean, you've, you've done an extraordinary uh, uh, amount. Is there anything where uh, you're, you, you would look back and, and give a piece of advice to your teenaged self? Um, oh, I think I would just say... Um, just work out whose opinion you care about and whose you don't. Like, I mean, I think um, that's one of the things that I've probably learned over the course of my career is just... Like, I mean, seriously, if 15 years ago you'd said to the sort of junior political journalist me, oh, you know, one day you'll do a show where you cook with politicians, I'd think, oh, my God, that's just... How hackneyed. Um, I thought you were a feminist also. Um... (laughs) How fluffy. But I also now um, think that I uh, – when, when I started – when I proposed the idea of Kitchen Cabinet, I thought, oh, God, you know, I, it sort of sounds like the weirdest idea and people think I'm an idiot. And increasingly I kind of care less about that. <laughs> Some people probably still do. Um, but 
I think if you find something that you think is worthwhile and you enjoy doing it and you know that um, some people find helpful, then that's kind of a, a good level of satisfaction to be able to achieve. Annabelle Crabb, thanks for the conversation. I've that really badly, haven't I? <laughs> <laughs> no, that's great. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks for listening to today's episode of The Good Life. If you enjoyed this program, please rate us on iTunes. Next week in the program, I speak with Jack Heath, perhaps the calmest man I know, about suffering, survival, and the role of meditation in a good life. <laughs>